0: This, this morning we have a, a chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. It's it's a very doable chunk of scripture, unlike some others that I've had to deal with. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read this uh, Romans 10, verses 1 through 13, brothers. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we have the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, there's a backstory to almost everything and we have one for chapter 10. And look for God's providential preparation for Paul's ministry as we consider, consider the following. <clears throat> From Paul's apostolic writing in Galatians 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we see pre-conversion Saul's devotion as a Pharisee, and in particular his mission in life of violence against people who believe the message of the Apostles. So I have Galatians 1, 13 and 14 up there on the screen for you or you can turn in your Bible to it, whichever you would prefer. (coughs) Paul, who was then commonly referred to as Saul of Tarsus, uh, specifically despised the message of uh, Stephen. Now Stephen I think, understood the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection as an end to the Old Testament sacrificial system of temple worship and possibly even an end to the Jewish-Gentile distinction period. While all that's true, uh, Stephen's testimony at the end of his trial around A.D. 34 is recorded for us in Acts 7, fifty through 53, Uh, We won't go there this morning, uh, but I'm sure you're familiar with the text. Now, immediately following Stephen's scathing pronouncement on the Jewish leaders, they took it upon themselves to incite a mob to murder him. Now, this was against Roman law that they did this, Uh, but they were so infuriated that they were in a rage, and they had possibly done something similar to this to other people. But in any case, they went ahead and went through with it. So then we have the record of a particular witness to Stephen's murder, and possibly even present for the trial as well. It was a young Pharisee in his late 20s at the time, And this eyewitness is none other than Saul of Tarsus, identified for us in Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read that. And Paul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul's rage against this new religion, referred to as the way, as it was called, continued for some time. And then a couple of years later, while he was en route to Damascus, with letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, could, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he could bring them bound in chains to Jerusalem. However, Jesus was waiting for Saul along the road. Along the road to Damascus. And as he approached Damascus, um, Saul had a life-changing experience. He met the living Lord and immediately flipped Saul's allegiance and his mission in life 180 degrees. Paul's post-conversion letters to various churches even uh, reveal even more about his background. In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul describes himself as a Hebrew, an Israelite, and a descendant of Abraham, uh, in 2 Corinthians 11. In his letter to the Philippian church, uh, Paul says he's a Pharisee, the tribe of Benjamin. Paul uh, Paul the Apostle uh, was writing to the saints at Philippi in uh, Philippians 3, 4, and 6 uh, describe his past Jewish nationalism as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was, he was a Jew, and, and that meant a lot to him. The first century uh, Israel was at the time uh, uh, had an all time low of um, Jewish Gentile relations, and in terms of the strain and strife between these two groups of people, there were a lot of things going on. And they were weary of seeing their land plundered for the best that they had. And they're even being threatened with imprisonment for no reason it seemed. Or even being put to death. It was an extremely troubling time in the life of the Jewish people. I'm going to take a short commercial break now. I once saw an episode of a TV TV series called Wagon Train. This aired uh, back in 1957 to 1964. And it was a a fictional adventure uh, story of a large westbound wagon train uh, moving through the American frontier from Missouri to California. One of the episodes of this wagon train had them going through a very long stretch of uh, frontier where there was no water. By the end of that episode, I was thirsty for water as much as the characters portrayed themselves to be in that episode. In other words, I related to the rigors of this group's quest for water to the degree that it physically affected me. Now, I don't expect the next few minutes will leave you relating to the Jewish people in that, in that way, but I'll try. Uh, at least uh, it'll give some connection with the Jewish people who endured centuries of foreign occupation of their land and of their lives in such a very personal way. In any case, it will be, I think, helpful uh, as you read Scripture uh, to have some of this information uh, provided for you. So the following thing is going to be a, a scant overview You know what scant means, that's almost nothing. Of the Middle Eastern history between 332 B.C. and 70 A.D. Now, some of you will appreciate this, and hopefully the others of you can endure it. (laughs) It it won't last long, maybe eight, eight or ten minutes. Okay, so here we go. Well, Alexander the Great brought his hordes into this part of the world, and it was the largest, uh, he was from Greece, one of the largest empires in history, and it stretched from Greece to the northwest India. And for some reason, Alexander the Great died early, at age, about, about age 32. Uh, may be suspicious, may not be, I don't know. In any case, uh, Alexander's military commanders uh, parsed out all of the territory in the region that had been conquered and it was given to them to govern following the death of Alexander and those people were known as the uh, the Seleucid rulers. So eventually, under their thumb, Israel was prohibited from practicing Judaism. Now, specifically what happened in 168 BC is the Greek king Antiochus the Four Epiphanes, invaded Jerusalem and captured the city. He marched into the Jewish temple erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus and sacrificed pigs on the altar of incense. This, of course, contaminated the tabernacle beyond belief for Jewish people who uh, felt that bacon and sausage was forbidden for them. So this forced uh, cultural change initiated the Hellenistic area and relating to Greek history, uh, language, culture, from the death of Alexander the Great all the way to the defeat of Cleopatra and Mark Antony by Octavian, uh, who was the first Roman emperor in 31 AD. Now, during this period, Greek culture flourished, spreading through the Mediterranean and into the east, uh, Near East and Asia and centered in Alexandria and Egypt and Pergamum in Turkey. Uh, Remnants of this Hellenization is evidenced in the New Testament in uh, numerous places, uh, but specifically, uh, just to mention one, Acts 6 recounts the complaint of Hellenistic Jew widows, Jewish widows, unlike the Hebrew widows, being neglected in a daily distribution of food, which brought about the uh, origin of the diaconate, which we are blessed to have great men serve in that capacity today. So the Jews, <clears throat> the Jews subsequently entered the temple and, and purified it in 164 BC. Removing the stigma from the temple, allowing them to re, uh, continue their worship. So moving right along, Uh, With the total collapse of the the Seleucid Kingdom in 129 B.C., uh, Jewish independence was again uh, achieved. Now, under the Hasmonean dynasty, which lasted about 80 years, the kingdom gained geographic boundaries virtually synonymous with Solomon's reign as Israel's king. Uh, Political consolidation under Jewish rule was attained, and Jewish life flourished. Then here come the Romans, capturing everything in sight. And they replaced the Seleucids as the great power in the region. And the Romans granted the Hasmonean king, Hirokinos II, limited authority under the Roman governor of Damascus. However, the Jews were hostile to this new regime, as they were all the previous ones, and the following years witnessed frequent, continuous insurrections, and then, as you can see on the overhead, that that came to an end. Uh, the Hasmonean dynasty came to an end. Um, So now we have the next group, uh, the Herodian dynasty. Um, being uh, Herod the Great being a member of the of the family uh, wound up being appointed the king of Judah by the Romans. And this ended the Hasmonean dynasty and initiated the Herodian dynasty with almost unlimited autonomy in the country's internal affairs. Herod the Great had become one of the most powerful monarchs in the eastern part of the Roman Empire and a great admirer of Greco-Roman culture. Although Herod launched numerous construction projects, even uh, completely rebuilt the temple, remodeled it, and made it into one of the most magnificent buildings of its time. Well, despite all of Herod's many achievements, he failed to win the trust and support of the Jewish subjects. So Herod the Great died in 04 B.C., and one of his three sons, Herod Archelaus, assumed one half of his father's territory. And then he was ruling for about ten years up until A.D. 14, and such a ruthless individual was replaced, I might have gotten ahead of myself here, I was okay, all right. so that brings us to the Herodian dynasty this is just a snapshot there were six of these Herods Um, the first one Herod the Great he's the guy in the Christmas story super powerful client king answerable to Rome he tried to trick the wise men killed the babies in Bethlehem not to mention some of his own sons and wives was a really ruthless ruler. Second was Herod Archelaus. He's the one of Herod the Great's surviving three sons mentioned in the Bible, and he received a ha- one half of his father's territory, which was the area surrounding Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and Samaria. Uh, if you recall the story... Uh, Joseph was unwilling to move Mary and toddler Jesus to Bethlehem after fleeing to Egypt because Bethlehem was, unwilling, was uh, within this Herod's territory. Uh, we read about that in Matthew 2. Herod Oculus was as evil as his father and he, replaced, he was replaced by a Roman appointee less than 10 years into his reign uh, there were numerous, numerous Roman procurators held this position until Pontius Pilate became Roman governor of Judah and Samaria from A.D. 26 to 37. And is the man in charge of Jesus' crucifixion rather than one of the Herods? Number three is Herod Antipas. Now, Jesus called him the fox. He read about him in Luke 13... He received a quarter of his father's territory, Galilee and Perea, which is east of Judea and Samaria. He divorced his first wife and married Herodias, the wife of his brother, who was yet another, a different Herod. Apparently they loved that name. This Herod killed John the Baptist, and Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to see this Herod as part of Jesus' trial since this Herod was visiting Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, that Jesus was sentenced to death. And did you know that Pilate and Herod Antipas became friends on that day? It says so in Luke 23, verse 12. The Number four Herod was Philip the Tetrarch. Now he got a quarter of his father's territory north and east of Galilee mostly ruled over Syrians and Greeks. He married his niece, Salome, <coughs> the daughter of Herodias, uh, Herod Antipas' wife of sin. Herod number five was Agrippa the first, grandson of Herod the Great and nephew of Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife. He eventually ended up ruling over more territory than did his grandfather. Herod the Great. In the book of Acts, uh, he's known as the one who killed James, the brother of John, with a sword and put Peter in prison. That's Acts 12. Although he couldn't keep him there. You know, the angels came and opened the doors and let him out. Also, this particular Herod did not give God the glory when referred to as a God by the people of Tyre and Sidon. And he was struck by an angel and eaten by worms. The last Herod, Agrippa II, like his father Agrippa I and great-grandfather Herod the Great ruled a large territory as well. And he's the one that interviewed Paul along with the Roman procurator Porcius, Porcius Festus when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea after Paul's third missionary journey. Now Agrippa blurted out to Paul during the session. He said, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. That's in Acts 26, verse 28. Was he real in the statement or was it sarcastic? Well, either way, Paul ended up appealing directly to Caesar and had no more contact after this with this final Herod. Well, time to get back to the writer of the to the letter of Romans. Well, almost. There's about another two or three minutes of first century Jewish religious history and culture to endure. So Saul, having been born, which is a good place to start, his, uh, his parents were also Roman citizens. Uh, they all lived up in Tarsus in uh, Sicily, which is modern-day Turkey. It's a coveted privilege uh, for them to have Roman citizenship. And Saul's entire family may have moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem, which is about a 600-mile trip, while Paul was, or Saul was very young. Now, this is assumed from Acts 23, verse 16, where uh, in one of Paul's escapades... His sister's son, Paul's nephew, uh, brought word that 40-plus Jews were conspiring along with the chief priest and elders to murder Paul. And Paul even mentioned two kinsmen at the end of his letter to the Romans in chapter 16 who were uh, fellow prisoners of his, both of them well known to the apostles, nameless, Nevertheless, uh, Paul also notes that these kinsmen were in Christ before he was, predating his participation in Jewish murders, in Stephen's murder, and uh, in the subsequent violence against the Christians recorded in Acts 8 and elsewhere. So there's another indication of how Paul's attitude was so vicious against Christians, those in the church, that even his relatives were in that group. And I'm fairly sure that if he had come across them, he would probably have arrested them like he would have anybody else. So then um, it was under Gamaliel that Saul would begin his in-depth studies in the law, uh, likely in the Hillel Academy of Torah Learning. And and this would have begun for Paul when he was in early teens. Um, Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts 5 and in Acts 22 as a famous and well-respected teacher. And indirectly, Gamaliel had a profound effect on the early church. He was... Uh, he was a Pharisee and grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel. Uh, Gamaliel was known for taking a rather lenient view of the Old Testament law, and his contemporary Rabbi Shammai founded the uh, competing Shammai Academy of Torah learning which was a more traditional, stringent adherent to Jewish law. Now, Shammai and Hillel were two influential Jewish rabbis whose commentaries on the Torah shaped Jewish theology and philosophy for hundreds of years. So they were very uh, uh, pr- prominent, in teaching the Hebrew scriptures to the young men of the day. So then, Saul of Tarsus became the Apostle Paul due to his unusual meeting of Jesus on the road to Damascus, which is up there on the screen for you. So Saul of Tarsus became the apostle Paul. He's an ardent missionary to an unbelieving world and a fine example of faithful service in the face of fierce persecution. We can read about those in Acts 14, Uh, 16 and 2 Corinthians 11 and there's something up there about his uh, education and background preparing him to be what Jesus and God had planned for him since before the foundations of the world now we finally arrived at the text assigned to us for today. So thank you for your patience and allowing me to get through that. I uh, I, I, felt it, I felt it important. So we're now at Romans 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now the burden of the Apostle Paul was an intense longing that people might be saved And the apostle was an outstanding man as a Christian, and he was outstanding in many categories, as I have indicated there on the overhead, uh, being uh, he was uh, excellent in any context that you could put him in as he uh, proclaimed God's word throughout the land that he lived in. His life was dedicated to seeking and saving the lost and pointing them to Christ, who alone could save them. So we should also link uh, Romans 9, 1 through 3, uh, which was to what we're studying today. And, and recall from Kyle's teaching two weeks ago, uh, where he commented at length about the statement that Paul made here in verse 3 on the screen where he says for I could wish that I myself were accursed and that's that's not a that's not a value statement relating to he actually did wish that but if it would be possible for him to wish that it's an expression of his Deep, profound longing that his fellow countrymen would be saved. So, what was the cause of the anguish, the external consequence of Jewish unbelief? This was not a trifling thing, it was right at the core of the Jewish heritage and specifically of the future of the Jews. Where would they spend eternity? That's how vital it was. It was the consequence of Jewish unbelief that was hanging in the balance here. And John the Baptist weighed in on this situation in Matthew 3 which is up there for you to to look at as well as Matthew 23 and verse 33 where Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees and the scribes. So I'm going to read nine, verse, chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 just to reacquaint us with the verbiage of that particular part of chapter 9. "...the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." Paul puts it on himself here, but that's the issue, that's the problem. Notice that uh, Paul doesn't say uh, this directly directly. He turns it around on himself, and and all these things are true. They were rejecting the gospel, and if they persisted in their unbelief, they would be condemned to an eternity in hell. That's the cause of Paul's deep anguish. And likewise should be our anguish as we move about in our um, circle of influence, And meet people who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. um, They need to hear it. So moving on to Romans 10, verses 3 and 4. The Jews had an extensive knowledge of the Word of God, but it didn't bring them to faith in the living Word of God. But rather their hatred of God was exposed. John 6:45 says, "It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me." This verse is quoted from Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31. In all their studies of scripture, they did not listen to the Father. They didn't learn from the Father. Something vital was missing on the inside of them. They had knowledge, all right. But they didn't have a discerning spiritual knowledge that comes along with a saving relationship to God. They had the kind of superficial religious knowledge that causes pride and arrogance, as in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, that pertains to food offered to idols. But they didn't have the godly knowledge that produces humility and holiness. Their lack of knowledge is tied to a lack of faith as it is even today. So I have put up on the board here for you uh, from Calvin's Institute, paid 187. It's his uh, his answer to what is faith and you can read that. It's not on the board. It's not on the board. Okay. One behind, sorry. Thank you. Okay. So there it is. So, as with the rest of the world, uh, Romans 1:18 through 21 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them ever since the foundations of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. And although they knew God, they did not honor God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Well, this was pretty much the case with Israel. Their hearts were darkened because of their rejection of the word of God. Now through Jeremiah 9, the Lord warned his people, and I'll read that. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord Well, boasting is something that the Jews were perfected in as well people in our day. However, most Jews of that day, uh, they did boast in their own righteousness and uh, considered themselves pleasing to God simply because they were God's ancient people and they were His chosen people. And for the same reason, they thought that there are many rabbinical traditions Uh, That they had substituted for God's word was perfectly acceptable. They thought they were more holy and gracious than they really were. They fully believed any deficit of their own merit could be met by their own works, measured by their own standard of righteousness. In uh, the Jews in New Testament times, as well as people in our day, attempt to attain a righteousness acceptable to God by their own efforts. But Romans 10.4 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Paul is saying that belief in Christ as Savior and Lord brings to an end the sinner's quest for righteousness through their own imperfect, imperfect attempts to fulfill the law. Just as kind of summary. Thanks. So, in uh, verse two, or, am I understanding right that uh, for I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge? So the knowledge here is it, it, words I would use is they had book knowledge, but they didn't have a relationship. They didn't have a they didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't know the intent. Is that kind of it? And then they were trying to design their self righteousness by doing stuff is that kind of the gist of these verses yeah Yeah. they 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 took the knowledge they had and used it to create methods of accomplishing what was required by works that they themselves could do i was just i'm just trying to make a sense of uh uh, knowledge in verse 2. So not according to knowledge is what he's talking about. So it's, they well, have knowledge, just the wrong knowledge. Yeah, you know, faith, <clears throat> faith is predicated on knowledge. We, we have to know what scripture says. And unless the Holy Spirit works on the heart of man to put that spark of faith in there to believe that truth and assimilate it into a heartfelt belief, then the knowledge is of no value in terms of your salvation. So that's where the Jewish people missed it, is they didn't have that spark of faith to allow them to coalesce all this truth that they had available to them. Um, And and fortunately for us, we are on this side of the cross and we have much more clarity than they did. But nevertheless, um, there's no doubt that the Old Testament scriptures are sufficient and adequate to bring one to a saving knowledge of God and they would be... uh, uh, believers, and many did. We read in, in the Old Testament uh, uh, many accounts uh, of that sort of thing. And it wasn't something that was denied them uh, per se, uh, but, but that would have been the case, as I understand it. The lack of that faith spark that could convert it from head knowledge to heart knowledge. Anybody else want to comment on that? You know, verse 3 explains it pretty well because it says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's where the defect in their knowledge was. And so they went and tried to create their own righteousness So the defect is in verse 3. Yeah, trying to take a shortcut. And it's human nature to want to be your own God. And that's what it amounts to. Thanks, guys. That was really great. Okay, so I read Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Uh, yeah, that's where I was. Okay, five is on the, on the board now. Righteousness that is based on the law demands absolute purpose perfection, in every detail of the law. James 2.10 is up here uh, clarifying that. In other words, if a person who failed in only one point of the law, that person would reign just as lost as a person who failed in every point of the law. That's the point of James 2.10. In God's law, the standards of holy living Are always require heart obedience so that the promises of Israel were contingent on faith evidenced by seeking the Lord. Deuteronomy 30 verse 9 and 10 says this, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world wasn't through the law. It hadn't been written at that point but through the righteousness of faith. And that comes right out of Romans 4 verse 13. Now, even the commandments of the Old Testament books of the law, the, the Pentateuch, are not primarily a call to external obedience. They are above all a call to a heartfelt adoring faith in God, of the God of mercy and loving kindness who desires obedience, and who graciously forgives sin. External observations of the law without an internal faith in the God who gave the law results in condemnation for sin without mercy. There's no salvation from it. So the point of that verse is there for you to Think about Now the only way that the Messiah can descend from heaven is for God omnipotent to send him. Which is exactly what God the Father did in sending the Son into the world to be our mediator. Now regardless of what form it may have taken, righteousness that's based on the law, which harkings back to verse 5 denies Christ's incarnation and denies his resurrection consequently works righteousness is also a denial of the gracious salvation Christ has provided by his own blood (laughs) bringing us to chapter 10 verse 8 through 11 now continuing Paul's personification of righteousness based on on faith from verse 6 he now asks in verse 8 but what does it say now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 10 or Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 here he says the word is near you it's in your mouth and it's in your heart That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So it's not calisthenics that we have to go through to find the way to salvation. It's it's been clear and abundantly revealed. Now his, his chosen people had been surrounded by the word of faith that Paul is now preaching. And even in the Old Testament, men could claim God's grace simply by receiving it by faith. The central truth about justification uh, it's not so high or abstract or deep or profound as to be beyond understanding. You know, even children can understand it, and many of them do. It isn't difficult, but it does require effort to get it into our bloodstream. However, in it's something that requires a life of concentrated study on God's word. Embracing what God has put in front of us requires hearing the word of God day in and day out. Now Paul reminds us with ease with which the, uh, we can understand the message and he boils it down to this. In verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now notice that in verse 9, it's an if statement. It's It's not a command statement. Every Christian is called to profess his faith, but a profession, absent authentic faith, attending it, will justify no one. Evangelizing should be this simply proclaiming the gospel and then allowing the Holy Spirit to take that truth and penetrate and pierce the human heart with it now there are many techniques that push beyond this threshold uh, to secure a profession of faith uh, to produce a, a numerical statistic to measure the effectiveness of an evangelistic effort but we have to understand that a profession of faith alone will justify no one The possession of faith, not the possession of it, is the necessary condition for our justification. So uh, conviction of truth is not a sensual matter. It's primarily an asset of the mind, and we live in such a sensuous culture that people fuse feeling and thinking into an inseparable bond. To Paul, it seemed impossible to possess a mental persuasion that never gets to the heart when the reformers were proclaiming the doctrine of justification among the great objections raised against it was easy believism or cheap grace anybody can say they believe in Jesus but saying it is no manifestation of their godliness so there on the Overhead is the ingredients of saving faith from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Yes. Uh, before we move on, it makes me think of Jeremiah 12, um, where Jeremiah is complaining to the Lord. And he says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them. They take root. They grow and produce fruit. And then here's the key part. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. Yes, indeed. And I think that goes very well with the beginning of uh, of chapter 10. It does. Thank you for that. Now to uh, show allegiance to our Westminster Confession of Faith here at Christ Covenant, I've put the contents of chapter 14 there on the screen for you. Um, it's the chapter on saving faith. And there are three points to it that gives explanation. Uh, you can look this up later. Um, and and read it and contemplate it on on more detail if you have uh, an interest in doing that. So now we get to the last of our verses in uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Uh, This statement that Paul makes in verse 12 here is within a very broad context. Uh, but even if you look at it in a more truncated f- fashion he's not saying that everybody uh, who calls on Jesus in a moment of trial will be saved the Lord warns us that when he appears and God's wrath is manifest against the unrepentant there will be a calling of the mountains and the hills to fall and cover them That's from Luke 23 and Revelation 6. Some who are lucid in their waning moments of life will say in that moment, Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. But it may be too late. So we may even be like the thief on the cross in Luke 23 and be brought to the Lord through the mysterious work of God through the Holy Spirit in our fleeting breath. If that's the case, we won't have to work through all the intricacies of doctrine so long as we understand that if we sincerely call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. After all, the question is not do we know Jesus, but rather the question is does Jesus know us? Three after ten. That's all I have to offer you this morning. Uh, if you have questions, we'll certainly try to address those. Could you read that section of the confession? All three of them? Yeah. Do you have time? I did. Well, I'll take time. <laughs> Point one, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer it is increased and strengthened point two by this faith Christian believeth to be true whatever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth Differently upon that which each particular passage thereof pertaineth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. By the principal acts of saving faith are accepted, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Point three, this faith is different by degrees. It may be weak or strong, it may be often and in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. What, what chapter is that? Fourteen. Fourteen. I it for the it's, it's Captured. <laughs> I'm going to close now. I've, I've got to go over here and uh, prepare the young guys in this classroom for the worship service. Okay. Heavenly Father, you are a good and a gracious God and you have made great and wondrous provision for your people by giving us your holy word that brings clarity to our minds and through the Holy Spirit brings that clarity and devotion to our hearts that we may be firmly planted in the rich soil of your loving kindness and salvation to us Bless us, Father, as we continue our long life's pathway to live out our lives in a way that is pleasing and honoring to the profession that we claim to be living specimens, believers of the Lord Jesus Christ and obedient to his commands. Go with us as we continue with our worship this day. May the hearts of many be softened and even penetrated and ruptured with the clarity of the gospel as it is proclaimed in our pulpit this day. In Christ's name, amen.